Wednesday, September 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Asset Management, Tim Hansen, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Maker. Happy Wednesday, guys. Howdy. Good to see you. Uh, we've got a European company that is finding success. We've got a U.S. company that is feuding with Uncle Sam. But we are going to start with uh, one of our favorites, and that's Groupon. Shares of Groupon up more than 9% earlier today, Joe, after launching a payment service that allows businesses to accept credit cards using an iPhone or iPod Touch. So the mobile payment industry just got a little bit more crowded. What do you think of this? Well, I'm glad you mentioned this because I'm excited to announce that I am also launching a mobile payment service where you'll be able to pay with an iPhone, and it's very interesting. Jomo? I'm calling it Jomo. I like it. Yeah. Um, it's a nice... Can I invest? <laughs> you can. You can at a $3 billion valuation. That's a bargain. Um, this is a total Me Too offering from Groupon. Uh, Square got way, way out in front on coming out with a really interesting new way for people to pay with credit cards with smartphones and tablets. And there have been a lot of Me Too offerings. Probably the most successful and biggest name one has been PayPal here. But there are a lot of other people chasing on their coattails and from the looks of it this does look like a good offering from groupon in terms of cost and usability but it's a little commodity like and it's unclear to me why any retailer would want to go with theirs i I mean it's a little bit cheaper that's interesting but they're kind of behind the curve and you know i don't think this is going to be a saving grace for them i was going to say i mean the groupon is pricing this in such a way that to businesses it would be a little bit more attractive when you look at the the fees per transaction square it's 2.75% per transaction paypal 2.7 groupon is 1.8 and then there's 15 cents on top of that but tim what do you think when you when you see a story like this well, Groupon's obviously been struggling for traction. I mean, their 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 core sort of coupon business has been dragging, and they've gotten a lot of bad press, particularly from um, you know small businesses in terms of who who use a Groupon and then how they're treated afterwards. So, to the extent they're making a business friendly mobile payments device, I mean, maybe that goes some way to patching up their. Um, relationships with some of these smaller businesses and then also you know you can bundle then potentially the Groupon with the mobile payments thing and you know god forbid that Groupon you know be able to give out their money to merchants as quickly <laughs> as they're going to help merchants take it in i mean i think that's there's some core business model things that Groupon needs to solve obviously for it to be a successful venture going forward and and, and a payments platform isn't going to do it on its own but i think you know in terms of trying to be um sort of an, an, an arbiter of business for, for very small local businesses. It's an interesting it's an interesting offering. And obviously Living Social and Groupon at one point were basically copycats of each other. And Living Social has gone off in a completely different direction, which is, I guess, all these sort of experiential adventure opportunity, big ticket coupons. Um, you know, Groupon's going a different direction. I, I, both of them, I think, are going are, are gonna to struggle to gain traction, though. I do think the payment business that they're going after, if they could succeed here, is actually much more attractive and durable than the actual Groupon business. And this is something that's not going to cost them much to try. So in terms of you know just trying things, I think this is a great move for them. I just don't think it's going to be you know a big hit. Well, so, I was going to say they also you know you know when it comes to any of these businesses that were really successful at something in the future and had a large community of people using them, you know think Netflix for example, um, Groupon, you know. Groupon has, 
I would guess, a Rolodex of businesses that might be interested in a mobile payments device that, you know, PayPal and Square may not. I mean, Square obviously has to start marketing from the ground up, basically. Right. Um, eBay has business relationships, obviously, because people have been listing products on eBay for a long time, but I don't think they've ever had a sales force that has gone out and physically touched, you know, some of those people who are listing on eBay. And so Groupon, you know, their sales force is talking to merchants every day, and so they've got a natural marketing channel for the device that maybe the other competitors who do have a head start on the technology, um, but maybe they've got a, a, a marketing head start. Joe, just to go back to something we were talking about earlier in the week when we were talking about Hewlett Packard and their looking to get into smartphones and that sort of thing. That I'm also happy to announce <laughs> that I am making my own smartphone. The, the Joe, Joe phone. The Joe phone. The Joe phone. Uh, also with a valuation of $3 billion. Um, but, I mean, when we were talking about that, that was obviously – that's not their core business, at least not now anyway. When I first saw this story about Groupon, I was thinking, well, this is – this seems like a relatively safe, relatively small bet. But to to hear what you're saying, it sounds like if this actually works for them, it could end up being – You could be a big home run. This could be the, yeah, the driver be. of of the majority of their revenue? Well – it could be. I mean, this is a potentially vast opportunity, and just in terms of some scope, the market cap of Groupon is about three and a quarter billion right now, and Square just closed around a funding that values it at about three and a quarter billion. So, you know, if they were able to grow into the valuation that Square has, which admittedly is probably insane, uh, that you know definitely could you say take that back. You know, there's something <laughs> you're hurting there. feelings in Silicon Valley. You know, there's something there, and there is definitely some upside, and I applaud them for going after this. When you look at the valuation of Groupon stock right now, obviously up a bit today, um, is it is it a value play, or is it still just there? Are there still too many questions about the underlying coupon business to keep you from being interested? Yeah, I'm not really. <laughs> interested just yet. I mean, like I said, I think this is a good move and I'd like to see them do more to keep tapping into their customer base, like Tim was saying. But right now, you know, the business is still revolving around coupons and a model that I'm not sure is sustainable or adding a lot of value for their customers. Inditex, the Spanish owner of retail chains like Zara and Massimo Dutti, saw its profits rise 32% in the first half of 2012 and shares up 6% earlier today. Tim, I'm confused. I thought I thought Europe was just crumbling. Well, this is How like, is it that a European apparel conglomerate is just apparently crushing it? And not just even your Spanish. I mean, they're in the heart <laughs> of the jungle there, you know. So uh, it's it's an incredible success story for for Inditex. I think there are a couple of ingredients. I mean, so they're seeing great sales growth, and and part of that has to do with you know they have a variety of value conscious concepts, and so they're clearly taking share from more expensive retailers in Europe, but they also have a global presence, which has been helping them. But they've also got their profit margins are reaching um, cyclical or peak highs right now. And, and that's impressive given the rising costs of, of a lot of inputs in, in apparel. And, you know, I think that's a testimony to, you know, what an incredible brand strength, pricing power that they've been able to produce. You know, and they've aggressively continued to open stores even through the downturn, which has clearly positioned them well globally as some economies have started to pick back up. And that's a product of the company, you know, has never carried debt. It's always been very, you know, a balance sheet with billions of dollars of cash on it. And so, you know, I think this is a great example of even in the worst macroeconomic environment, and this is this is a good lesson for investors who are worried about the fiscal cliff, all these sorts of things that sure. are pushing against positive investor sentiment. Even in really bad macroeconomic conditions, great companies can continue to perform. 
And Inditex is a, is a clear example of that. When you're looking at apparel companies, because it seems like, and I'm just basing this on companies that have a big presence in the United States, so Abercrombie & Fitch, Aeropostale, uh, Gap, Old Navy, all that sort of thing. It seems like there is uh, a greater degree of uh, pressure on management for apparel companies, in part because apparel is just it, it, anytime you're betting on the whims of teenagers and their fashion choices, it just seems like it's sort of a risky proposition. And it seems like to the extent that apparel companies in particular have really strong management that, uh, to your point, Tim, can um, effectively manage inventory, can can make the right decision when it comes to expansion, that sort of thing. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. And one of the things that Inditex has proved to be so successful is that they've got this portfolio approach. They have Zara, which is the flagship sort of brand, but they also have um, Oisho, Pull and Bear, Massimo Duty. They have a whole variety of concepts that hit different sort of fashion niches from the young professional to the teenager to this and that and the other thing. And so they can test and learn. And, you know, when one thing's not hot, one of their other concepts is if you go to malls where they've really built out a presence, um, they'll often own the entire floor that they're on. So they'll have it'll they'll all be Inditex stores, which is you know the mind share that they take in the mall is really impressive, and they've got the financial strength to be able to weather one bad performer because when they have one bad performer, they're seeing other good ones, and that diversity is not something you find in most apparel companies, and it's just a testimony to the way that they've managed the business, um, put the business together, and always had a real focus on keeping a, a really flexible balance sheet. Joe, do you shop at any of these places, or are you just strictly a Bonobos? No, this is going entirely over my head. This is, you're a Bonobos guy? All I'm drawing out of this is when I hear Inditech, it sounds a lot like Inditech from <laughs> Office Space. The, the tech company from yes. the classic film Office Space. Uh, Tim, you're welcome for that tip, by the way, America. <laughs> uh, Tim, just to wrap up on this, uh, obviously we're talking about a European company, as you said, in the, in, in the heart of the trouble in Spain. Closer to home here in the U.S., what's an example of a U.S. company that you think is not only surviving but thriving despite pretty challenging macroeconomic times? Nothing that we've seen over in Europe, but pretty challenging here over the last few years. Well, I think Costco has done an outstanding job clearly over the last couple of years, not only picking up um, more sales and market share, but they also were able to push through a membership increase. And so that, you know, and, and they're an example of another company with a great balance sheet. You know, they offer clear value to their customers, and, and, and they've done really well. At a time when lesser retailers are seeing, you know, generally speaking, a really tough comparable sales environment. So, like I said, I, I think the takeaway here, um, even you know, Inditex is a Spanish company, Costco is a U.S. company, but you know, as people, even though there's uncertainty today, you know, great companies have demonstrated that they can perform even in tough environments, and sometimes tough environments are good for them because it weeds off a lot of poorly run competition and they pick up market share. General Motors is pushing the U.S. Treasury Department to sell its stake in the automaker. Uh, if you recall, back in 2009, there was the $50 billion bailout, and the U.S. owns 26.5% of General Motors. And, Joe, I'm quoting here from the story in the Wall Street Journal. GM executives have grown increasingly frustrated with the ownership and the stigma of being known as, quote, government motors. Executives have said the U.S.'s shadow is a drag on its reputation and hurts the company's ability to recruit talent because of pay restrictions. Privately, executives are also irked at the continued curbs on corporate jet use. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just find that amusing. Um, in all seriousness, though, this is a company that you've followed closely for a long time. 
That's uh, nice of you to put it that way. Where, where where do you how do you see this playing out? Because they want the U.S. T- uh, Treasury Department to sell at stake, and the Treasury Department has essentially said. No, we're not going to do that because if we sold right now, it would be at a loss, and and we're going to continue to hold our shares, and and uh, and and that's all there is to it. How do you see this playing out? Well, sidestepping the jet part, which is obnoxious, and I hope was limited to one smarmy executive <laughs> and not a whole team. Um, I do think GM shares are cheap, and I agree that there is a bit of a catch twenty two with the government stake, where it is hurting the reputation of the business, both the stock and the business. And there is an overhang related to that. But it's tough for the government to exit its stake, especially in full when that's the case, because, you know, again, it's the government's own investment is hurting the business and holding on the stock. I think what actually was proposed to the government makes a good deal of sense. It's not the timing, which is that GM, which has $30 billion plus in cash, goes in and buys back part of the government's stake, starts putting out an exit strategy and putting some of its cash to work. Uh, in terms of timing, though, no, like I don't blame the government for being a little bit choosy. And, you know, unfortunately, the stock has done uh, very poorly. And realistically, from a political standpoint, you know, and I, and I know this isn't a political show, but let's be real. Like, is the Treasury going to lock in a huge loss on GM right before the election? Probably not. Right? <laughs> Probably not. When is this likely to happen after the election? Either Romney wins and he said that he's committed to unwinding He said he would sell state. it immediately. Yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> uh, he has said that he would get rid of it. And I think uh, President Obama and, you know, the Treasury debatably through whatever extension, would be eager to get rid of the stake too. It's just that no one wants to do it in a way that's politically unpalatable. Uh, At the first chance they can, though, I'm sure they would exit quickly. Uh, But again, I do think the strategy of buying back, part of it does make sense. Tim, what do you think? I mean, doesn't it seem like excuse making to blame a shareholder for the reason why your business is not performing as well as you said it was going to? It does. It does. And I think with AIG, there's something Like, is it my fault? That, you know, I don't know, what, what do I own shares of Berkshire? That Berkshire Hathaway is, is struggling the, near an well, all-time been, low in price meaning, to book value? I've been meaning to talk to you about the Tim Hansen discount <laughs> on the Berkshire shares. Uh, yeah, and I, I think there's something to that. And, you know, you look at AIG, I think they would say, well, you know, we with early last year were 92% owned by the government. And yet we've managed to actually pick up some business. The stock is doing pretty well. And they've just unloaded a massive amount of shares the government did on the public that swallowed it up. So when you look at that, I'm sure it's kind of a, a bitter pill <laughs> to swallow over a GM. I mean, yeah, I would say that, you know, it's not the government's fault as a shareholder that the vault has been a disaster. It's not, for example, the government's fault that, <clears throat> you know, GM can't attract talent. You know, there's a waiver. I mean, they can, the government can, if they want to pay more than the restricted, they're allowed to go and petition for it. You know, this just seems like excuse making for a company that and a lack of accountability at a company that basically has a history of a lack of accountability. And that was what got him in trouble in the first place. And, you know, whether it's new management or old management, it it seems if I were a GM non-government shareholder or a government shareholder, I'd be very disappointed not only in how the business is being run today, but also in how the, the management team is reacting to that. What do you think is more likely that the U.S. sells the entirety of its 26.5 percent? Uh, or that before that happens, we see some sort of shakeup in upper management? I would guess that they will sell part or all of it before you see the CEO go for no other reason than the 
Uncle Sam was involved in the selection process of the CEO, and it's tough for them to kind of back off that. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think, you know, I think they're going to try to struggle along with this for, you know, definitely until after the election and probably beyond that with everything currently in place. You know, it's just, but like I said, I think it's it's just a black eye for GM that, you know, Chrysler, which had a similar situation at the outset, which then got sold to Fiat, you know, Fiat is now going around the world trumpeting how much money Chrysler's making for them. I mean, it's pretty embarrassing for General Motors and something needs to happen. and, And the solution is not I mean, the problem is not who their 26% shareholder is. I just think that's that's excuse-making. I wish I had a smarmy rebuttal, but I don't. <laughs> we will end there. Tim Hanson, Joe Baker. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. For more information on Motley Fool Asset Management, you can go to foolfunds.com. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the talk, stocks they talk about. And the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our future is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.